Welcome, Welcome to, to the Better, Better Call Daddy Show. This is Big Daddy. Oh my God, that's hysterical. You're not going to believe this. Oh, oh my God. God. Five stars. Five and a half stars. Papa. My dad is my hero. Grandpa, are you ready? I love a good happy ending. Oh boy. Hey, hey, The phony baloney. And a tit for tatter. Hey, a lot of these things, I don't know where you're getting them from. It sounds like they're coming from when I look in the mirrors. Damn the public. Damn the public. <laughs> Introducing Brian the Healer. He is a Kabbalist, which means he studies Jewish mysticism. He's a spiritual lyricist, and today he is going to translate his teachings into poetry. Brian, welcome. Can I give you a demonstration of some of the things I do? Yeah. I'll tell you a little bit about your dad. Okay. Your dad, he's got the sphera of ferret, the bottom half of ferret, which is associated with healing. Raphael. And what he is good at is bridging opposite sides or bridging opposite people, any situation. So it could be like in a corporation, the, the creative side and the execution side. It could be, you know, just like sometimes you have clothing, they clash and you bring in that third piece and it makes the whole thing work. That's your dad. I would say that's true. How did okay. you gather that? So when I put my hand on your dad's picture, I could get like a field information about his selim, which is called the aura. I could do the same thing with you. Okay, do me now. Okay, so first of all, you're carrying like a man's energy around your heart and your, your shoulders, and he's like heavier than you. Your, your mind processing is processing faster, thinking faster than your heart can keep up. So that will make you feel like... Like you have to push with adrenaline. You have to force yourself instead of flow. But based on your head, <laughs> you have um, very, surprisingly, you have very strong right and left hemispheric processing. You are amalgamation of the sphere of chesed. However, you have a unique ability to take the abstract and work it into creativity and, and then plan it and execute it. So um, very few people in that sphere have that creative range, the full creative range, which means that although you're a sensitive person, you're not like most sensitives that if somebody bothers you, you get very weak or you get very anxious. You just like double down. You're more of an endurance person. Wow. Can you explain to the audience what chesed is? So chesed is a sphera. Chesed was translated as loving kindness because of the phrase Gimilat Chasadim. Gimilat Chasadim is acts of, of kindnesses, of graces. It means divine grace. It was a perspective that especially the Talmudim of Beit Shammai would have a mindfulness discipline that everything in every moment is really for the greatest good, the very greatest good. And even though that's hidden, we say Olam Chasad Yabana. It's basically the primer for all existence. We don't get to see under the paint job. We don't see it until a future time, till the world to come. As we say in Shir uh, HaMalot, at, at the time of a future time, there'll be laughter in our hearts. And the mystical idea of that is, is that because everything will be very intricately for the greatest good, we'll all be full of laughter. So chesed is a projection from a future time. 
So think of it like there's a light in the future that when we attain it, it reverse engineers and recalibrates the entire construct. So chesed is a viewpoint that's realized in the future. It's hidden. But in the future, it emanates at a very high level, you know, very high level that's associated with the shechina. When the shechina is revealed, everyone is going to be, wow, how intricate everything was. You know, even a mishap was a miracle. How much work went into me missing that bus or, you know, getting fired from that job. Like, it was like Kriyat Yamsov was like splitting the sea every single time something went wrong. I think if people understood it from that perspective, how much coordination goes into something bad happening, then they wouldn't see it as bad. And I believe that in the future that will be revealed. And that's why it says in Shira Malot, that our mouths will be filled with laughter because when we see beyond the veil of, of dualism in the world, we will be able to acknowledge and realize how everything in every instant was planned for the greatest good. Are you able to do that? This relates to a lost aspect of Torah in Kabbalah that's alluded to many times by the sages. It's a concept called the law of Mida Keneged Mida, that the, in everything that happens, God runs the world with the construct of measure for measure of Mida Keneged Mida. And it's a very, very intricate, layered, abstract concept that's very similar to karma in the East. And it has very much to do with, which is a big theme in Kabbalah, is the two trees in the Garden of Eden and what that means, those two trees. What does it mean, tree of life? What does it mean, the tree of good and evil? One is a tree of inference, of deduction. We experience what's not, and we kind of make a circle, and then we experience what's not, and we make the circle smaller and smaller and smaller until we get our target. We, we figure it out what is, right? You have a blind man. A blind man, he's walking a path. He bumps into walls, gets bruised, beaten up continuously, but he goes on the path enough times that kind of figures it out. Right, but there's a lot of ugly course correction and it's a grueling evolutionary process for him to be able to navigate that path. However, the blind man also has the ability to take a stick and refine another sense. And through this greater sensitivity, this greater sense, he's able to walk on the straight path without bumping into any walls. For Kabbalists, this was called Derachayashar. This was called the straight path. That was represented by the mythos of the Eitz HaChayim, that when you're plugged into inductive knowledge and closeness to the Creator's light, that you can operate a journey that would take a very long time. You could have Kvitzat You can get to where you belong a lot quicker and in a lot nicer way. However, if we don't, if we are like the Eitz HaDash Tovara, if we have to learn from our mistakes, we have to learn from being disconnected. So we're constantly learning from being off. There's a drastic course correction. There's all sorts of pain and struggle in that evolutionary inference. And so it's lessons from, from difficulty. 
I want to kind of tie that into what you were talking about when you said that the more we believe. Sadly, in Judaism, because of a lot of repression and a lot of trauma, repeatedly, we've lost the language, we've lost the ability. Kabbalah has been a lifelong pursuit for me, something I, I focused on when I was in university in Yeshiva. I'm from a family of Kabbalists on my, my maternal and my paternal sides. This is kind of what you're born into, you know? You're that guy. There's always like a crayon 64 and you know, there's always going to be that one crayon and you're going to get it in every society and in every group of people. For me, you know, it was always very important. Like if we were doing tefillah on the Yom Naraim and I have a choice to pray for parnasah, to, to have sustenance, or you have a choice to make requests about your blessings. My first desire was to have a knowing heart. That was always my, my deepest prayer. That was always my deepest passion. That was something that I was committed to very early on. I love that. Do you feel like you have that now? Well, I leave it up to, to people to, to deduce that for themselves. You know, there's been a movement, a rationalistic movement, last 200 years to kind of sanitize out all the inconvenient facts that are not purely rational out of Jewish tradition, or at least to mute them and buff them out. Like, let's not talk about these things. There's been an effort because we live in the West in a very clinical, logical, scientific background. There's kind of, in some sectors, there's the shame to speak or to delve into the mystical, the mystique, the role of the poets, the intuit, the prophets of all times, you know, we've lost the language of it in many ways. Every once in a while you have a movement, Hasidut was a big movement that re-energized, but in the industrial revolution, when everybody's like a little cog or a little wheel that can just be replaced and nobody has any satisfaction in what they're doing because they have the existential pangs that I'm easily replaceable I'm just a widget. There's nothing I'm doing that's really so me, right? It's, it's, it used to be like an artisan, you know? We've lost that in industrial production and in the way we run our corporations. And so we get hardened. We get hardened by the existential pangs. We turn into combustive strategies for coping. That's really the opposite of the Jewish tradition, which is supposed to be an Asa Konegdo, dynamic of where there's synergistic components. You know, the Ezo Kinego in the context of Adam and Chava was each one was supposed to support the other and bring out each other's potentials. Or alternatively, they could go into dominant and repression dynamics and they could keep each other in status and decline. So we have this tradition in the Jewish mystical tradition and it's reflected in our psyche and it's reflected in our greater society. You'll notice in the world today, we are coming to terms with this and there's some kind of shift going on where we're moving away from combustive technologies and we teach kids in school. We don't just lecture 
the three kids that think exactly like the teacher, but we're preparing for each trait and we want there to be some incubation going on in the classroom where they kind of learn from each other and take responsibility and reflect off each other for intrinsic learning. That shifting is happening in lesson plans that teachers do. In the corporate world, it's happening in business as well. But do you really think that there's not group think in Jewish schools? We're awakening into a period. One of the problems that is particularly a problem in these times is the concept of copy case society. We have an algorithm or we have content and we just like copy it without embracing it. And we just copy and paste it and install it. Incidentally, in Kabbalah, there are four dimensions that every creative act goes through. It starts off at the level of Atzilut, which is you're inspired, and it goes to Bria, you go through creativity, and then it goes through Yitzira, which is the planning stage, and then it goes to Asiya, the implementation stage. In the Kabbalistic tradition, each of these stages is associated with a different letter of the Tetragrammaton, God's eternal name. So in Kabbalistic tradition, the number 70 is very important. Adam, he started out a being of light. <laughs> he didn't have materiality. And then when he falls, right, when his awareness dims, the R that he was, it changes to an iron. He's gifted with R, becomes his body. And the body produces distance, separation. The body reinforces separation and separateness, and that results in feeling small and shame. So when Adam is in a body consciousness, his R, his light, which is the Aleph, the oneness, it becomes the Ayan, it becomes the 70. And it's for this reason, there's a Kabbalistic tradition by the Havdalah that we take our fingertips and we put it towards the fire because the reflection of the fire on the fingertips kind of gives like a little flicker of light. And we should recall that really we're supposed to be energetically light, the 70 archetype, it appears throughout the Torah many times. There are 70 nations after the Tower of Babel. There are 70 steps in Jacob's ladder. In tradition, Joseph goes to Pharaoh and there are 70 steps he has to climb in order to be able to speak to Pharaoh face to face. And then according to tradition, in the Agadita, he speaks Lashon HaKodesh. This is a mystical idea. Paro did not know Lashon HaKodesh, which basically means Lashon HaKodesh is a language of how we bring the eternal into the physical. And he didn't, in Mitzrayim, they didn't know that. That was the Kabbalistic architecture of Yosef's ascension. The Torah is given to us in order to be able to commune with the intangible states of what it means to be human and what it means to have a soul. And our practices and the way the Torah was delivered was designed to put us in touch with states of Kedusha, of sanctity, which meant that we were conductive with spirit, the light of existence. We no longer teach about Kedusha. We no longer have a full understanding of it in schools. So therefore, we bring up children that it's something that's alluded to archetypally, but we don't really relate to Kedusha. We don't know what that is. I feel like even my husband was like, how do you know that this guy is really a Kabbalist? Like, you know, cause there's like people that dabble in it or like, 
Right. I mean, you were also in your introduction, you were like, I descend from Kabbalists on my maternal side, on my paternal side. Like you were really like I into would. that. Well, I, I would say, let's be clear. There are a lot of people that are going to say that Kabbalah means it's a tradition to receive a teacher to a student. And it's true. Kabbalah was, for the most part, it wasn't taught publicly through history. They had small circles, but let's call it the way it is. There was a tradition for Racha Kodesh, for divine inspiration and prophecy in Israel. There were guilds and circles that used to travel and study in these disciplines. These were lost because of trauma to Israel, but there still were a passage of the traditions of lower states from where that comes. There were ecstatic traditions. The idea of Kabbalah is that everyone has a certain personality and perspective and trait. And because of that personality and trait, you have blind spots, you have prejudice, you have confirmation bias. Your own viewpoint is not accurate. Kabbalah was a way of abstractly polishing the lens of awareness to espaclaria meira, to a pure lens, to a lens that didn't have a prejudicial impression. The idea here is that Kabbalistic study in its integrity is one that's Kabbalah, that you receive data, that you refine your latent qualities and you develop a higher sensitivity. Have you ever questioned your faith? I think like that question is like very silly from a Kabbalistic perspective. From a Kabbalistic perspective, like from a deductive perspective, you'll go like, where is God? Kabbalah is a, a discipline for experiential knowledge. I can go to some village, right? That's cut off from humanity and accidentally I leave a car manual there, right? And they develop a whole cult around the car manual. It's their holy book and they know it inside and out. They can repeat every detail of the car. And, you know, and they worship the, the car God, but none of them know what it is to drive a car. So there's a difference between inferential data and experiential knowledge. And Kabbalah was designed for us to be immersive and have experiential knowledge of creation and the greater divine. So you feel like you have experienced the divine? I feel like I can work with anyone and help them experience the divine. Oh my God, please help me experience the so divine. I would, so I would say that, that a rational mind would say like, I have faith, I believe in God. Kabbalists, Amunah is a little different. They accept God's belief in them. They relate that I'm here for a purpose. I know I'm here for a purpose. I'm here to, for a very specific role. And I have to fulfill the faith that God puts in me each day. And my discipline of Amunah is Hidbodidut. I go into secluded meditation and I, I set myself to receive that abundance of belief and charge and responsibility and love that I receive from the creator, the ain't self, for my journey. Can you break that down a little bit? I believe that originally in the Torah, every Israelite had a tradition. The basic tradition that they had wasn't that much davening back then. The sitter was pretty small. But what they had was Kabbalat O Malchut Shemayim, was the exercise of taking upon the responsibilities of heaven, and that was reciting the Krishma. 
and reciting the Krishna starts off with unifying God's name, that everything is one, regardless of how you perceive it. And then we say, which is also a Kabbalistic formula for unifying our worldly thought with higher intangibles, higher heavenly operations, just like the Amin Yishmi Rabbah, which basically means the same thing as Baruch Shem Kavod in a different language, it's in Aramaic. And then we say the passages of Shema, and it goes, that you have to share God's love to the best of your ability, to the best with all your might, basically all the time. You have to be radiating God's love. Now you'll say, hey, Brian, you're switching it around. You're saying you're radiating God's love. No, you have to love God. That's what it means, right? You're loving God. So we have to surrender ourselves to receive the love of the Ein Sof, what the Kabbalists call this or this higher light. In ancient times, in the time of the Mishnah, they would talk about how you have to learn Torah Lishma, and you have to do Avodah Lishma, which people translate for God's name. You have to do it for God's name, but that's not really what it means. They're just saying Lishma because they're not going to pronounce Hashem's name. But ostensibly, lishma means you have to do it devotionally, unconditionally. You have to do it with the fullness of unconditional love. When you write that Sefer Torah, it has to be with unconditional love. Have you always loved God? I don't think a person can love without a connection to divinity. And I find that people who have trouble expressing love don't have a very good relationship with the greater beyond and what they don't understand. They're stuck in a form of trauma an abandonment, and a hardened heart, which is a repeated refrain throughout the Tanakh, is the hardened heart. And you have to make a covenant, a brit ala leiv. You have to renew your heart. It really is the emphasis again and again and again that I don't really care about your carbonate and I don't care about this and that. I just want you to, you know, make a covenant on your heart and a Brit Alalev, and look after the orphan, and look after the widow and the foreigner in your midst. Don't be horrible to them because you were a foreigner in Egypt and all that. And it was all about, you know, all this stuff that, that's touchy feely. I mean, really, ostensibly, Judaism was revolutionary in its time. Our kings were not, and our heroes, you know, Abraham was not a mighty warrior per se right? He's a divine shepherd. Yitzchak, Yaakov, Yosef, they all carry, in comparison to the world around them, that has this brazen toxic masculinity where the women have no rights in marriage and, and their people are treated as objects. And the Torah is coming from a revolutionary perspective with drastically feminine values compared to the nations around them. Our emphasis is the Shabbat, which is distinctly feminine. The Torah is, is a language depicting femininity in it. We come from a culture that in its time crystallized a value of more feminine emotions, more feminine approach than the really, really toxically aggressive world around us. And so what that was supposed to do for us was to keep us sensitive, keep us being an Am Kadosh. You gotta talk about what Kadusha is too. 
you have to understand what a soul is, a nishama. And nishama is a, is a network, it's an umbilical cord of divinity. And if you have a nishama connection, the stuff of creation that's recreating world in, in real time, in each instant, it's circulating through your soul and then running through your heart, through the expressions of the spirit of your heart, of the emotions of your heart, we affect our world through our sentiments, through our avodah, through our devotions. That was the Jewish tradition. It's interesting. I mean, it, it's interesting because we mentioned the learning from trauma, the learning from inference, from course correction, from evolution, you know, the eight sadat tovarah. What about Corona on a Kabbalistic level? I was afraid you'd ask that. <laughs> corona appears like brazenly masculine and as black as can be. And if you understand the climate of the world at the time when it appeared, you would see that the world was becoming a tempest and entering into this really toxic, brazen dominance and selfish vibe all over the world. All over the world, there were more fascist-style political parties and the leaders were arising with a flood of toxic masculinity that, you know, this is a real man. A real man, like, acts in this way. It wasn't exactly a study in Misilat Yisharim. You wouldn't look at these people to study, like, the way a person is supposed to behave. But nevertheless, a fever took root all over the world and people, because of their grievances and their anger and frustrations, they decided we don't care about other people. We don't care about how it will affect anybody else but our own personal uh, interests. And so we don't mind if these people are horrible people. We want them because they're gonna rebalance what's in our interest. The whole world went through this rebalancing at that time. Sadly, children were in school and the innocence of children very much got tainted by experiencing the way people were talking to each other, the way leaders would talk to each other, and it caused a scourge on, on innocence. Um, everyone became cynical. What was your relationship like with your parents? My father was a super, 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 super compassionate person. And my mom was someone who made great chicken soup and rice when you were sick. And she was someone who got sick when I was born. So she had some kind of like reaction, immunoreaction when I was born. And so she, she had migraines and different kinds of things that were challenging when I was born. But my mother was a full-time mom and she did the best she could do under her situation. Was she ever able to heal from that? Yeah, I think she's doing great today. I think there are, I think today medicine has come a long way. What lessons did you learn from your father? My dad was a person who, who was very devoted to helping the underdog and downtrodden. He helped a number of women get gitten that weren't able to get them for many years. He helped. You have to explain what that is. It's a sad situation when a woman in divorce couldn't get a Jewish divorce. And he represented a lot of, he was a law professor and a lawyer, and he represented a lot of downtrodden parties that were being bullied and taken advantage of. And he dedicated himself as uh, in service to a lot of very great rabbis and sages in helping their agendas for schools and community concerns. 
I always felt for him that he was someone who really was paternal to anyone who came into his consult and care. And he had a very, very, very powerful heart of compassion. I remember when I was a child, it was so obvious to me today, but when I was in like grade four, my dad used to have cufflinks. So for my birthday, I wanted to know, you know what surprise he should get. And I said, I'd like to have cufflinks like him. So my dad found some like thin silver cufflinks that he got engraved with my initials. And for me, it was like delightful. Like I'm going to be like that. It was very exciting for a little kid. And I'm waiting and waiting and waiting because it takes time for the engraving and all that. And he picks me up on a Friday from school and I'm, I'm just jumping on my seat. I want to see it. I want to see it. And my dad goes, no, I can't give it to you because there's a boy who's coming home with us whose father passed away. God forbid I can give you a gift gift a father to a son in front of a child that has no father. And that was just the kind of person he was. Wow, that's a really great lesson. Yeah, and I can say that ironically, like when my dad got sick, I was the one who stopped everything to take care of him. So I, I truly, truly wished at the time that I could have made a bigger difference and I did the best I could. But my dad was very appreciative and he gave me a bracha that I shouldn't that good things should happen, that I should be able to help a lot of people. So it's really meaningful to me that if I went through a situation with my dad, that I could try to help other people going similar situations if they don't have to. Do you think your dad influenced your belief in God? You're pressing on this question a lot about like belief in God, so I may as well just give you a blast of Kabbalah on it. From a Kabbalistic perspective, there are two halves of God that start out from the from the very, very beginning. In Latin, they call it credo ex nihilo, something from nothing. Yesh ma'ayin. Some people think, okay, this is a philosophical paradigm, you know, like everything emerged from nothing. That's not the Kabbalistic understanding. In Kabbalah, like in Nefesh HaChayim of Ruchayim Velazhan, he'll describe the older names we have for God are just perspectives of getting to a certain perspective. But God really has no name. And the closest thing we can compare to God's name is Ein Sof, which is the eternal. And there's a limit to what we can conceive of God because we can only conceive of God up to the creative platform, to the medium. Creation is a creation and we can understand God's lawfulness within creation. But outside creation, we have no conception. It's beyond conception. It's way beyond us. So that was called Ayan. The idea is, and I would say that in the Eastern philosophies, they focus on the Ayan part of God. And in the religious circles, they focus on the Yesh part of God and the lawfulness part of God. You know, so I would say in relation to parents, someone who has a traumatic relationship with a maternal relationship, right? They will receive more catharsis if they cultivate a relationship with the maternal side of God in the abstract. Which one is true for you? My discipline is, and in Kabbalah, that's what I would teach, is that you have to have equivalent expression, circulation of your relationship to both sides of God. That's how you do yichud is you have to have as much, you know, circulation of God's love to the part of God you understand 
as the part of God that's way beyond you, way beyond faith, right? You have to cultivate a current of relationship with that part too. In the Kabbalah, we would say a person who only has a relationship with the part of God they understand, they would be tested with perpetual tribulation. They would say that because they lack the awe for the greater unknown of what they don't understand, therefore the forces of awe that are above would give a creative expression to the forces of negative indictments, so, so to speak, to put impediments and challenge to kind of crack the nut of this individual, crack the seed, help them blossom to see awe as much as they love God because they're dividing, without them realizing it, they're dividing God's expression to a dualism. Are you a painter? So there are periods of my life where I'll, I'll just paint for a few months, but I'm a more of a poet and writer. What do you write about? I write about Kabbalah in romantic terms, and I write about love. I write about works that what true love is, what lishma is, and I try to distill it in a way that's accessible to the everyday person what unconditional love is, because it was so core to Jewish identity in a relationship with the greater divine, it was necessary for us to carry that with all your heart and soul. Incidentally, why is there an ace there? It should just be what is the ace there? So the Kabbalistic explanation is that that ace is designating that the love is coming from God. You have to take it from the Aleph to the Saf. You have to take it from the simple oneness and you have to bring it all the way to the Saf, which represents the divine feminine, the hidden potentials in everything in the greater Gestalt. So you have to literally carry God's truest love. God's love is an unconditional love, it's Lishma, and you have to ferry it and circulate it in all your creative acts and achievement, avodah and devotions. Speaking would, of a mitzvah, I have a bar mitzvah coming up. Is there anything Kabbalistic about that? So there's the tefillin. The tefillin shoyad is supposed to represent the Hester Panim, the symptom of how God hides his presence in the world and the way the tefillin is bound and the letters evokes, evokes the name Shin Dalad Yud, which is the name of how God holds back his presence, the strength of it. In Kabbalah, it's often associated with the angel Matat. The angel Matatron is in charge of how much revelation you can see that it wouldn't take away your free will. In other words, if everything the way it was was so clear and so apparent, then of course you would do the more benevolent and right thing if you saw the damage of it, right? So there's a certain tinting of awareness that needs to go on in order to maintain bechira. However, free will. When a person, when a spiritual aspirant works and devotes themselves and actualizes those sentiments in purity, so the idea is that they can fulfill and show that this is what they are. And if they got to see a little more, it wouldn't really change anything. Do you want to read me some of your love story Kabbalah stuff? I would like to first read one thing and then I'll read something else. So this is called the Celestial Cup of Tears and I'm going to read it. 
The celestial cupetiers, the Jewish mystics imparted wisdom relating to the various tiers of dimensions of creation. A poignant example is the legend they recount about the dimension of tiers. When translating insight about the essentially abstract dimension of tiers into linear terms, they employ an analogy of a great celestial cup a vessel that collects the emotion of every tear that is shed by humanity in a given year. Every tear is counted and is designated as precious. The analogy was designed to convey a secret that there is an actual dimension dedicated to gathering all the emotional chords and discords released in relation to struggle and strain by every human soul. The mystics prepared linear analogies for better understanding the processes of the abstract interdimensional dimensions. They explain that unawakened individuals often find that they are blocked off from earnest and intimate expression, unable to rise above their own callousness because they believe they are too bound to their own harsh judgments of self and of others. Oftentimes, these individuals will also succumb to feelings of being beat down by the prevailing judgments of those within their circle of influence. The mystics impart that the tears, tears have a role in opening the very dynamic portal, a cathartic portal for overcoming prevailing inertia and division, definition and blocks that cripple you within a mindset of dualism, polarities. These are things that repel blind awareness. Callousness and indifference exiles the individual from the higher aspects of soul that attempt to echo through their heart streams and expressions of unity with the eternal, with all of creation from beyond this veil of consciousness. The mystics clearly articulate that the mechanism of the portal of tears is so aligned with the eternal in ushering forth processes of mercy from God's unity that the tears themselves shatter all definition. As well, they convey that through benevolent harmonization of these tears, these floodgates, cathartically streams of eternal oneness beckon forth and renew the hearts along our earthly tear. The mystics accentuate that every tear is collected, counted and cherished. And the ministering angels of the sacred dimension transfer the emotion of these tears into a celestial cup. When the celestial cup of tears grows full, the floodgates of deliverance opens up allowing the octaves of higher processes to rush over us and awaken us from our slumber and our descent into linear struggle. After this union, there will be no room for tears of sorrow and struggle along our earthly dimension. And the tears that will be shed will only be tears of joy, ecstatic tears of reunion and intimacy. Intertwined with the lessons imparted through this archetype is the idea that every year there's a predetermined amount of tears that will flow. 
The nature of these tears, however, is not predestined, only that there's a specific amount of tears that is predestined to flow each year. Whether these tears shed are shed in elation and ecstasy or in heartache and strain is dependent on our collective awareness. And penultimately, it's the choice of each of us to access and exude a higher kind of love. The mystical approach to this idea is that we're indicating that there's a great mechanism at play here with the mechanics of the natural physical laws of which we all have grown familiar. The idea being that our earthly dimension needs to maintain balance and equilibrium with the energy we put out. When an imbalance arises, there needs to be a release mechanism to counterbalance the momentum and usher us to the opposite direction. This means that as tears release like a failsafe of energetic tensions within individuals and society, they also release tensions rooted in the overall collective consciousness of humankind along our earth. If we could learn to share tears for our brothers and sisters on this plane, we could all share tears of compassion rather than tears of sorrow. The amount of tears that's needed is a limited structure. That is one type of Kabbalistic expression based on a Kabbalistic archetype. You don't uh, have to answer this, but I did have a question because I feel like you brought up abuse a few times and it was also mentioned there. Has any abuse happened in your life that inspired that? So I grew up as a sensitive, so I've always been very sensitive to friction and the way some people can act towards others. It's always been a theme for me is I, I've always been sensitive to the fallout and the, the greater fields of what I would call darkness or indifference that take root when people repeatedly act with indifference or aggression to others. I'm going to read a piece that I wrote called Kiddusha. Kiddusha. So much is misunderstood about the nature of spirit. Spirit is not a science. It is not linear. Spirit is connectivity, a space of merging with the eternal, where all linear machinations fold and implode upon themselves, and things progress in a nonlinear fashion, where you could go from the middle straight to an end point, where you can go from an end point directly to the beginning point in a fraction of the time it would take a linear progression of one, two, three, four, five, and six. It is called the short path, and it's called a path of intimacy. A path of spirit is the path of intimacy. To be spiritual is to merge in alignment with your intimate self, to dedicate that intimacy within the vitality that is you, that song of truth, and dedicate it to an emerging realignment an emerging, an emergence of a greater gestalt of you to reunite with your higher soul. This is a reunion of oneness progressing back from the fractured self into your own singular all. That is the spirit. That spirit is called spiritual. Spirituality is two lovers running on the beach 
back into an immaculate re-embrace. Spirituality, Kiddushah, cannot be used as a weapon. Kiddushah cannot be used to coerce. Kiddushah, that is coercion, is not Kadosh. Kiddushah is intimacy and love, and oppression is not love, and it is not intimate. It is like two lovers, and when one lover is with the other, both must remain vulnerable and expand to a greater sum of the parts, a greater spirit of a Gestalt phenomenon back into a higher expression of unified oneness. Together they coalesce and form something greater than some of their individual selves. That is Kiddushah, that is intimacy, that is reunion. That is the river of eternity flowing to usher in a gradual expansion from many back into the oneness of all. Yeah, it's kind of rhapsodic. And uh, <laughs> it's in the ecstatic tradition. Um, Brian Baruch, sending lots of love. Thank you. So good to connect. Have awesome. a wonderful night. Have a great night. Okay, be well. Now, let's switch it over to Grandpa. What's very interesting is some people are seeking the truth. Brian is really seeking love. And the connection starts really with your relationship with God, where you are trying to accept that God loves everyone first, and that he has a purpose for all of us. And to be able to take that compassion and love that he gives you to be able to share it with others and that he really wants to have a compassionate and loving earth. However, he didn't just make it where we're like angels, where we already know the right answers. He gives you a chance to make your own path with freedom of choice to come up with the right answers, to come up with the right doing onto others as we would do onto ourselves. That compassion and love that we are trying to feel where it starts with God and that we want to get from other people that are around us, but to be able to come up with the reality of experiencing it. And even though we have the Torah to learn certain lessons and guidelines, and it's easier if we have some discipline and we have some lessons, it's a lot harder to go through life trying to figure it all out on our own and to experience and just learning from our mistakes. But the irony is that do the means justify the end? Or does the end try to justify the means of the path that we've taken? Very interesting question. I think that all of us are given a chance to follow a path to get to the right end. And some of the means of getting there aren't necessarily where we're even choosing wrong. It's lessons that we're learning all along the way. And hopefully we're strong enough with God's help to be able to face those challenges so that we can come up with a, a legacy and a conclusion to our life that did make some sense along the way. It's interesting that you picked up on the fact that he is looking for love. His whole Instagram is filled with that. Here's a quote that he has on there. The love that you feel inside is awarded to you so that it may flow through you on its own way to invigorating the hidden divinity in others. Well, I said that without even knowing that quote. He's looking for the eternal love story. Absolutely. And he's hoping that not only can he find it, 
but that everyone should be searching that out. So that's why I said it's a search for love, not necessarily a search for truth. That's so interesting. He also says, love in your heart, you connect all that has been lost with everything to be found. I think it's a noble cause. The sad part is, is that we cannot force people to love. We can't force people to do the right thing. But every time we try to at least better ourselves and understand and appreciate the love that we have and to be able to share it, the world has a chance then to take one drop at a time, one raindrop at a time, or as he would say, one teardrop at a time and hope that they can all add up to something good in its conclusion. How about that example about the story of his dad? This is part of his compassion because he's also not only has the example of studying God's ways, but his father has been an example of that compassion. He's been an example of trying to help others that have been in unattainable circumstances. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Better Call Daddy Show, please feel free to review it at ratethispodcast.com slash bettercalldaddy. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com. 